This is Digital Pathology Today. Now, here's your host, Dr. Joseph Anderson. The big trend in oncology over the past few years has been immunotherapy. This trend is converging with the digital transformation we are undergoing in pathology. We seem to be at the crossroads of immuno-oncology, digital pathology, image analysis, artificial intelligence, and the increasing ability to multiplex. Welcome to Digital Pathology. I'm Joe Anderson. Our guest is Dr. Keith Wharton from UltaView, a company looking to reveal actionable biology through multiplex immunofluorescence to make immunotherapy a reality for patients with cancer. Keith is a board-certified anatomic pathologist with diverse achievements in research, drug and diagnostic development, as well as clinical investigation. He leads UltaView's pathology and biomarker analytics team. We're going to be talking about what exactly is the need for multiplexing, how much information can multiplexing add above and beyond singleplexing or other histologic features? What about diminishing returns and what are challenges to implementation? And what about the increased system complexity that comes with multiplexing? What about system failure? And we're also going to look at specific applications in immune oncology, multiplexing versus single gene analysis of markers such as PDL1 by other methods such as IHC or histologic features such as tumor infiltrating lymphocytes or TILs. Can these be used alone or in a complementary approach? Dr. Keith Wharton from UltaView, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, this is a very exciting time. So I think a lot of folks are interested in what you're doing at UltaView and multiplexing and digital pathology. So let's talk a little bit about that. I think immune oncology, I think also is a very hot area, and it sounds like you have some applications in that area and probably goes beyond that. So let's just jump right in and talk about what is ISP technology? Thanks, Joe. ISP stands for in situ plex. So this is a DNA barcode-based antibody staining and signal amplification system for multiplex staining. So it was developed by UltaView several years ago now. UltaView, by the way, is a spin-out startup company from Harvard's Mies Institute, who is founded by David Walt and Peng Yin, who are faculty at Harvard. It's about six years old. We've been through four funding rounds. And so back to ESP, ISP, rather, four basic steps. It's a more or less standard staining workflow. So you take a unstained section that's been uh, you know, properly prepared in, in a standard pathology lab. You apply a set of uh, DNA barcoded antibodies. That's step one. Step two would then be doing in situ DNA amplification of the barcode on the antibody using a proprietary technology developed in-house. The next step then is, since you've amplified the barcode, now you hybridize fluorophore linked to a complementary barcode. And that uh, you know, creates a, a bit of a Christmas ornament type arrangement. And then that amplifies the signal. Then you can detect using a variety of uh, fluorescent slide scanners or even using an old-fashioned fluorescent microscope, although most people don't do that these days. Okay. So it sounds like it's DNA-based. It sounds yes. like there's an amplification step. There's a hybridization step. There's a fluorescence-based detection. So it sounds like there's a lot of similarities to FISH, but I'm guessing it's kind of a proprietary technology, so it's not exactly the same. Some similarities to FISH. I mean, the big difference is that the antigen retrieval is pretty gentle, right? In this case, the, the DNA to be amplified is kind of sticking out of the antibody instead of buried somewhere in the cell or in the DNA. So the antigen retrieval standard, it's very gentle in the tissue. And the staining could be done on automated immunostainers. And right now we have uh, predominantly used the bond, uh, like a biosystems bond RX. Another nice thing about the gentle aspect of the tissue is that you can, you can take off the probes. 
through an exchange process, dehybridizing the probes, and then do another round of staining. I see. So you can get up to eight, 12, eight plex, 12 plex. Uh, we've done 16. I think we've done 20 in our research group. So possible to go higher. Of course, it's more time, but it works pretty well. I mean, two of the things, if I can mention them, is that uh, we have the ability to stack those MIF multiplex immunofluorescence data sets to get the, the 12 plex. And then, of course, you can false color to visualize it any way you want. But another thing we can do is merge an H&E of exactly the same slide that's been uh, imaged. And then we can merge that with the multiplex fluorescence image stack called it using a software called UltiStacker that we've developed in-house. So this lets you phenotype, in essence, every cell in the section. I think this is an incredibly powerful technique to visualize the marker phenotypes in the same section where you see the H&E. Right, right. So you're able to overlay those images really to get right. a very precise immunophenotype and you can localize it to the H&E features. Right. And the multiplexing, I think, is a giant step forward, right? Moving away from you know one or two markers to being able to multiplex, I think, is very intriguing. So interestingly, you use fluorescence and I think fish or what how we used to utilize fish. I think one of the main applications was looking at HER2. Right. I think that market kind of moved away towards SISH, right? Got more chromogenic right. based detection system. So, and then you mentioned you were utilizing the Leica bond instrument. So I'm wondering, you know, what are there advantages to uh, fluorescence based detection system compared to a chromogen? And, you know, what, how did you go about evaluating that? And, you know, is it possible you could move to a chromogenic system in the future? I guess. We could get into the differences between bright field and fluorescent microscopy. I think they're important. Of course, pathologists have a lot more familiarity and affinity for bright field microscopy. So that's one big driver of getting all assays in a bright field format. I frankly think that's going to matter less once there's a much wider adoption of digital pathology. And the output of any assay that's done on the tissue can be colored or visualized in a way that is, you know, like a bright field microscope. So whether it's a, a pseudocolor overlay or a, a symbol denoting a particular cell type, I think the sooner we're able to get the data off the slide, whatever the modality is, you know, into a data format that's compatible with digital pathology, I think the modality will matter less and the quality of the data will matter more. And I think there's a lot of literature about the advantages of fluorescence detection as a means to localized proteins to understand the dynamic range of expression, to look at co-expression. I, I think those technologies are, at least based on current comparisons, are far superior to chromogenic. But you are right. Pathologists have used chromogenic IHC for decades. They're very used to it. They're used to doing one stain at a time and signing out cases that way. So I guess I feel like digital pathology itself is foundational for formatting data in a way that it really doesn't matter where the data comes from or how it gets there as long as it's trusted. Yeah. Uh, by that's the a good point. Yeah. Yeah. I think as we increasingly go digital, you know, maybe the pathologist familiarity with these things is going to matter less. And, you know, we go from right directly to the scanner and then visualizing it on a monitor or computer display. I think it, right. you know, those considerations may become less important. And interestingly, so there sounds like there's clear advantages to fluorescence, you know, maybe the signal is crisper. You have a variety of different colors, and maybe it's yes. easier to discriminate either by you know machine learning or image analysis. Right. Well, 
Once again, there are colors that the fluorescence uses for detection, you know, with the filters and the camera and so on. And then you can color, in terms of visualization, you can color the false color of the images any way you want, right? Depending on how you want to visualize them. So I, I think there, there's two ways to think about color there. One is the technology. The other is, is how you use it to aid interpretation. Yeah. And so what about multiplexing? I think it's very intriguing. And, you know, I think we're, we've all been kind of waiting for this moment yeah. where, you know, A, we're going to go digital and B, we're going to be able to multiplex to our heart's content. Uh, right. right. <laughs> and so, but I think there's a downside to it or, or there's technical considerations, you know, and I think, you know, maybe starting at the top, genes often cluster, right, in pathways and, and yes. families. And I think there is maybe a natural tendency to think, well, more is better. You know, if we can have 10 genes, why not 20? And if we have 20, why not, why not 100? Yeah. That's got to add more information. But the downside is maybe it adds complexity. And yeah. maybe there is diminishing returns in terms of, you know, the information you can get about the biology or the pathways involved. So yeah. what's been your end? And, and I think, failure right like is it you know more likely to fail you know let's say you have a, a 10 plex assay and nine out of the 10 work maybe you'll have to throw it out right you're going to need all 10 to work every time so i think are, are there considerations yeah. in terms of finding that sweet spot as to what is the best number of genes to look at well first of all i think in terms of the number to look at but the nice thing about multiplexing is that i think it it's in sort of a middle ground between, you know, one marker per slide per IHC, which lets you answer a certain set of questions and the sort of single cell omics, uh, spatial transcriptomics techniques that let you answer, you know, very deep questions and actually perform discovery that I think are probably not, you know, scalable for the use of a typical pathologist or, you know, they won't care about a lot of the data. It'll be, it'll, it'd be a bit like NGS, where if you do a large panel, you know, a lot of what you get is not useful, but maybe a little bit of what you get is useful. So about diminishing returns, I think what you mean by that question is whether you get less extra value from the information you get as you add each additional marker. And I guess I feel like one advantage of multiplex panels is that you can choose a set of markers to answer a very specific set of questions you have. And again, whether it's research for research discovery or diagnosis. So I think if you're designing and using the panels properly, there shouldn't be any waste because the markers you pick, the channels you use, the analysis you do are designed at answering the diagnostic questions that you want to answer. So that's for diagnostic use, but then you know for, for research use, you do want a lot of extra data because you don't know necessarily what you're going to find or what you're going to learn. So depends on the user, I think. System complexity, I think you touched on. That's a bit of a tricky one because of course, as you know, the only prevailing digital pathology systems that have been cleared by the FDA are really only to be used in comparison with the microscope, you know, to be viewed by a pathologist without image analysis, without AI, without anything. So it's just, are they comparable to a microscope? So then when you add multiplexing on top of that, right, you need probably a different scanner. You probably need more image analysis for sure. To make sense of the image analysis, you probably need some sort of a reference atlas. And then to really kind of understand it or make sense of it, you'll need probably deep learning or AI of some sort. So, you know, this ideal system of the future we can speculate on later on. I, I think we're going to get there probably sort of in a stepwise fashion. And again, I think the first step is just getting pathologists comfortable with images on a screen and looking at the data and comparing it to what they're used to, which is DAB 
IHC. And I guess one last point of it. When you say, so let's see you do a 10 plex and, and then one of them doesn't work. I think it depends on the use of the 10 plex. Like if you just compare that straight up with 10 IHCs, you know, you could argue that most of the IHC done today is, you know, redundant. It's part of panels. It's low risk class. You rarely make a decision on one slide, the information from one slide or the success or failure of one marker, right? You have internal and external controls. You know, I think it's possible for any one marker to fail for sure. But I think if you've designed the experiment correctly, you'll make it robust to failure of any one marker with the proper lab controls and, and proper perhaps on-site controls. So again, a lot of topics are, I hope that uh, got, got to most of them. <laughs> yeah, ab- absolutely. Yeah. Sorry. I just kind of got, got so excited and a, a rush of questions came into my head and I'm also showing, maybe showing my bias. I'm uh-oh, uh-oh. You know, <laughs> looking, you know, from the perspective of commercially available molecular based assays. So yeah, I guess my point about diminishing returns is, you know, I've seen, personally and just through study molecular assays on the market you know that may have 10 genes 20 genes and so on and, and they come up with a composite score yeah you know but much i think in one of the cases a you know a well-known assay over 50 percent of the information could be derived from one gene right and then oh, so then you know yeah. and then so as you add more and more genes i think progressively they add less and less value so then you know, it's almost an arbitrary decision where right. you have to kind of make a judgment call. Where do we cut this thing off? You know, I think it's, you know, we want it to be as informative as possible, but we want it to be as simple and robust as possible too. I guess I'd have to believe it's a bit of a different game. The assays you're talking about, right, are based on bulk transcriptomics, where you really, you know, if the cell's important, pathogenic, but if it's if it's at low abundance, right, it's going to the signal from that marker is going to be diluted in the bulk transcriptomics. I think the single cell analysis as a foundation of these panels is going to change the game because the pathologist already has the ability to look at every cell in the biopsy, right? That's their job. So to have that information overlaid on every cell in the biopsy, it's a different set of questions and challenges you come across. And the one that bulk transcriptomics faces with, you know, should it be a 12-gene panel or a 15-gene panel? It's a different problem, I think. In fact, that other problem kind of goes away. I see. Right. Yeah. And then, and then, so kind of along those lines or along that bias is, you know, I'm thinking of it maybe more from the perspective of a commercially available assay or a clinically, an assay that's designed to be used clinically. And yes. then you have other considerations, like mainly that it needs to be a robust, meaning that yeah. it has to work most of the time. Otherwise, you yeah. can have the best assay in the world. But if it, you know, even if it works even below 90% of the time, it's going to become very frustrating, right? You have, doctors right. and patients counting on these results and right. oh lo and behold sorry you're the one out of 10 person we can't get results on you know yeah. and then it has to be able to be done relatively quickly with you know with a fast turnaround time but you bring up a good point that you have to be clear about what you're using it for and there are uses beyond clinical use mainly research and discovery uh, so maybe talk no go ahead no i was going to say regarding robustness i think right you can test that and i think there have been a few publications recently using our technology and others about reproducibility i mean there's no doubt to do multiplex fluorescence well it's more effort than doing a manual h e let's say right there's there's all the usual upstream pre-analytic staining considerations that need to be paid attention to you know quality of histology slide quality you know, then you have to have robust reagents. They have to perform on a robust platform. 
and then you know you need a scanner that gives you an image that is you know reflects what's on the slide right there's more steps but i think that's testable of course you know if any lab decides to develop a test based on this workflow right they have to define their system and validate it anyways and so i think the drivers there are at least initially in the initial stages of adoption assuming the other aspects are green lights or just redundancy, right? Pathologists like to see, you know, the DAB Brightfield IHC as a comparison to make sure that what they're seeing, you know, they can trust. And that's how, in fact, how we QC our assays when we create them and we we make kits. So redundancy is, um, you know, in design and in testing is helpful for robustness, you know, beyond the actual design of the assay. And I think with turnaround time, which you mentioned, your clinical workflow turnaround time, I, you know, I think that has to do with how well it fits into an existing workflow. So, you know, this is where I think some of the technologies, either from an assay development standpoint or, you know, assay turnaround standpoint are, are very challenging to implement clinically, unless you're just willing to wait for, you know, two to four weeks to get your results. And I think nobody's going to be willing to wait for that. No clinician, no patient, nobody, no payer for sure. Yeah, right. Exactly. I think no matter you know, how excited people are about new technologies. I think, you know, the old technology of what's known as turnaround time kind (laughs) of almost trumps everything. So specifically, you know, where do you have an eye towards your technology being deployed? Do you see it more as being incorporated into clinical diagnostics or as a research tool or a combination? Well, so I would say, you know, today it's a research use only labeled technology. Our primary customers are pharma companies, biopharma companies that come to us, you know, like they all do with, you know, very specific need in mind. And if it's in the field of immuno-oncology, they're typically looking at, you know, what I would call the usual suspects, right? The CD3 that labels the T cells, you know, some of the CD68 that labels the macrophages, but then they're asking, you know, a specific question. So maybe about a specific subtype or a specific target. So what we do for them is we have a process called ViewView that allows us to make a novel panel for them. But then at the end of that process, if everybody's happy with the panel, they can run that on their machines or we can actually run it on our machines. We have a, a CLIA certified lab where we can do that as well. So like every week we're, we're, I would say our, our activity right now is just mostly driven by the curiosity and desires of the primary customers right now. You know, as you know, it was fortunate to spend several years in drug development and pharma companies and, you know, have some understanding of how assays transfer from early stage clinical trials, for example, to later stage clinical trials. And there's several issues, right? There's performance, there's lab environment, there's issues around the protocol and data integrity and statistical analysis plan and and all kinds of things. So, you know, I think we are working with some customers to on exploratory objectives of clinical trials. So we do routinely process clinical samples. But as you know, with exploratory objectives, these are the research, right? They're still research. I guess we're excited and we're, I would say, a quality journey to enable eventual use of our technology in clinical contexts. But it is a journey, as you know. It's not something you just, from a standing stop, you know, jump 10 feet and land where you want to be. It's a progressive process. It's a matter of gaining trust, gaining confidence, publishing results, perhaps some degree of standardization within the field around what results mean using different platforms and different technologies, which of course there are many now to multiplex. 
Yeah, yeah, there are many. So I think, you know, one, you're talking about uh, kind of the journey of going from drug discovery to drug approval to actual implementation in clinical practice. And then one of the big developments in diagnostics has been the idea of the companion diagnostic. Yes. And I think we've kind of, you know, for whatever reason, as a as a specialty, or it goes broader than that, you know, we've kind of lagged behind, but the ideal would be to incorporate the companion diagnostic or what we perceive as the candidate companion diagnostic that will ultimately eventually be used to select the patients for therapy, to incorporate that into the clinical trial at the time that it's being done. So it can be done truly in a prospective way. Right. So are we there yet to do that? So I don't think the field is there quite yet. You know, I think if you look at CDXs that are approved, and I just want to clarify, I think that's a common term, that's, but I think it has two meanings out in the field, right? It means it's a concept, right? The idea that you can take a diagnostic and use it to, you know, help decide whether a patient's going to respond or not. The other, I would say, is sort of an official IVD designation. It's a category that is recognized by health authorities as a specific regulatory designation. So I think when you're having discussions about CDX, it's really important to clarify really what you mean. And of course, in the latter, there's also this concept of the complementary diagnostic, which does some of the same things, but not in the same definitional way. You know, I really, when we were talking to folks, we really want to just make sure that they understand exactly what their ambitions are. I would say, you know, right now, we're at the stage where we're using the technology to help our customers, help some academics as well, get a better understanding into simply what they're seeing in tissue. This is often done on retrospective cohorts, about large tissue collections where there's already an outcome data available. So this is a, an excellent opportunity to generate, to test hypotheses, to generate hypotheses, potentially just to serve as a basis of real world evidence. But if you take that to a health authority and show them that, they'll turn you away and say, all right, we'll come back with prospective data, you know, a better lockdown assay. You know, a larger issue is whether the CDX, if we're talking about a designation, is actually, you know, a distributed one or one that is performed in a single site, in essence, as an LDT, but as one that's more mature as an LDT, a laboratory-developed test. So, I mean, I love the concept. I think... And I guess I'd like to think historically about this, you know, HER2 is a mature field. The test as it was designed, you know, over 20 years ago does a decent job of, of separating a largely bimodal population of patients into two different categories, right? One that responds pretty well to a targeted therapy and the other ones that don't. And there's 5% in the middle, of course. And then I think at that time, and I guess thinking of my, you know, 20 years in this field or so, you know, I think the people studying oncology thought that there would just be like a lot more HER2s out there to find where you'd have these bimodal populations and devise a test and it would very cleanly separate the responders from the non-responders. That's true of many, you know, mutation-based targets. So, you know, BRAF, KRAS, EGFR, and so on. I think it's probably not true, for example, with PDL one right? PDL one is introduced uh, and sort of clarified a lot of the potential problems that applying the HER2 paradigm to companion diagnostic development entails. So that's, but on the other hand, that's foundational for really the field of immune oncology and testing and, and sort of transforming cancer care. So, you know, yeah. we're in the process of learning a lot still about cancer as we try to help patients with cancer and, and companies try to develop drugs. 
Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I think, you know, her too is kind of the poster child or the paradigmatic case of the uh, targeted therapy and the companion diagnostic. And on the surface right. of it, it, look, it looks pretty good. Right. But then when you start poking around, you're like, oh, wait a minute, this isn't what I thought. You know, I didn't going from how the trials were designed. Right. right. Did they truly ever incorporate any HER2 negative patients? You know, so it was in basically an enriched trial. So you're starting with all positive patients. And then what's the criteria to enter? Is it two plus? Is it three plus? You know, right. it wasn't the original assay that was used in the pivotal trial that actually got developed to do a diagnostics. And then you're faced with all kinds of bridging studies. Then right. you come in later with alternative methodologies such as FISH. You know, and then yep. even in actual clinical practice, HER2 testing was kind of a disaster there in the US, like in the early 2000s. Right. Before ESCO and CAP stepped in. You know, so like just a lot of issues like that, you know, and then labs were in actual clinical practice, they were tasked with saying, okay, you have to have 95% concordance with a right. validated method. And no one says, well, 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 wait a minute. The actual concordance with the assay used in the clinical trial was only 79%, right? So it's like, there's a lot there, I guess, to learn from and improve on. Well, and look how long it's taken, right? Two decades. Yeah. I think the latest CAP update was in 2018. And that really concerned right, how you interpret various fish tests and not everybody does the same fish test. It's taken two decades. And well, and now, and it, of course, there's new HER2, there's therapies designed for HER2 low. So, you know, the early iterations of the test really didn't require you to distinguish, for example, a zero from a one. But now it's going to be important. So the assay itself may have to be looked at again at those cut points. So it's complex business, right? Right. Yeah, exactly. It's It's complex and it's evolving, right? Even after all these years, it's still evolving. So, Which makes it exciting, frankly. I mean, actually, (laughs) I mean, it makes it exciting because it's always changing. And you talk to people who practice regularly that, you know, they have to stay on their toes to do the best job they can do and want to do. They have to learn constantly. So yeah, makes it a great career choice, frankly. Yeah. And then so kind of bringing this back to kind of what you're working on now, I think the poster child for uh, immune oncology, there've been a few blockbusters launched in the past few years. And then the marker we're looking at is PDL one Yes. Uh, which has somehow become the companion diagnostic. And I think the landscape is different now. I think, you know, when this came out, maybe around 2016 or so, in terms of, you know, our ability to actually do molecular testing and develop markers. And I think a lot of people were kind of scratching their heads and saying, well, why, you know, based on everything we can do, right? Everything we can know, this is the best way, or this is the best companion diagnostic and uh, yeah. a single IHC. <laughs> so then I think a lot of people are kind of scrambling behind the scenes yeah. and working on, on alternative methods. Right. And you talked about incrementalism, I think, before when we started. And so it kind of sounds like your approach of multiplexing to attack this problem, you know, is more of like a quantum leap, you know, not so, so much incrementalism if we're talking about multiplexing compared to a single marker. So maybe tell us a little bit about the work you're doing uh, specifically with immune oncology. Well, all right, just to frame that up, I think before I would call it a quantum leap, I would say it's a quantum leap on the cool scale. But then the question always becomes, you know, how is it useful and how have you shown it's useful? And, and is it deployable, right? So I don't think you touched on it, but like one of the major complaints about, you know, I think PDL one I've seen over, you know, the past several years is just the fact that the assay platform, the clone, they weren't standardized up front. So the foundation of this was really, you know, each different company having a fundamentally different hypothesis about how the drug worked and how they were going to enrich for patients and how they were going to sign the assay. And of course, 
platform was assigned. So, you know, it worked, which is great. Most of them don't. But then now we're left with like, how do you, you know, how do you actually test? And then at the same time, what you alluded to it, where it's like, okay, well, all right, you just have a single IHC assay, you know, it enriches, but there's a lot of false positive and false negative responders, right? In whatever assay you use, heterogeneity confounds testing. So you can do repeat testing and be positive or negative if you're negative or positive the first time. There's the fact that the, um, you know, it varies by indication, right? In some indications, you don't need a test. In others, it probably is really important because it keeps you from getting a drug for which you'll, you know, have no benefit and you might have the opportunity for, for serious side effects. So, and then, you know, in the meantime, field of immuno-oncology, even though it's a couple of decades old, is still kind of in its infancy from a targeting standpoint. And everybody's getting, you know, combo therapies. So I, I think when you have a new standard of care, right, it becomes impossible to repeat the trials, impossible and unethical to repeat trials where the standard of care is, you know, a placebo or an old standard of care. I think you're at a point where, you know, you have to begin to at least in part rely on some real world evidence, you know, to change practice. And I think the FDA is starting to recognize this. I think this puts a lot of potential power in the hands of individual labs that are innovative and want to offer something new and participate in studies, the right types of studies, you know, and then eventually perhaps take that test to the FDA as a single site PMA. You know, this raises, raises a larger question. You know, if you look at the type of IHC we've done for the last 50 years, right, it's a single slide, you know, run on an autostainer, it's read by a pathologist, there's no software per se, you know, it just has to run well and look good at the end. That can be done globally, right, because all you need is a microscope. But if you are going to, you know, look at, let's say, 6, 8, 12 markers, you're going to be quantifying phenotypes, you're going to be doing image analysis, is that even scalable? Is it standardizable? You know, I'd like to think it will be one day, but I think we're nowhere near that. So I guess this raises a thought that I've come up with before, right? The, the FDA has proposed this concept of the PIX pathway as a means to specify whole slide imaging systems. In other words, the ability to track the pixels generated from the scan slide all the way through from, you know, the scanner through the software to the viewer. And so that would allow the pathologist to know that when they're looking in the viewer that they're seeing, you know, exactly or roughly what they would see in a microscope. I think if we apply that same concept to higher level workflows, more complex workflows, and multiplex is not the only one, I don't think we'll ever standardize it. I think it's going to be too complex because there's too many different ways to do it and we really don't know the best way. And every system is frankly different. So I guess what I've thought about since the goal of you know, most of these assays, these multiplex assays that are done is not just to paint the tissue with six, eight or 12 colors. It's actually to identify cell phenotypes and to localize them and then to be able to count them. Why not focus standardization on that attribute? So in other words, let's define an exhausted T cell as this much CD3 relative to the range, you know, this much PD1, you know, this much of other exhaustion marker. But I like about the fact that there's so many multiplexing technologies now is that there's actually the possibility for that data from different modalities to converge on these agreed definitions of cell phenotypes that we can eventually agree on as pathologists to look at in disease, either in a research or eventually in a diagnostic capacity. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think standardization, I think is going to be key, especially with all these various competing uh, platforms and methodologies and 
And I think it gets even more exciting and challenging as we move into digital pathology when we can incorporate H&E features, right? So, yes. you know, maybe the other part of the story for immune oncology is the good old fashioned lymphocyte, right? That we've been looking at on H&E sections for a long, long time. And we've yes. known that they have prognostic value, but now we're beginning to enter an era where we can actually quantitate these things in a reliable way using image analysis and then incorporate those into algorithms to help perhaps assess prognosis or who might better respond to therapy. Yes. Uh, so how do you see that playing out maybe even in concert with say your multiplexing yeah. approach? So first of all, it's incredibly exciting, right? Just to see the expansion of all, on all the papers where deep learning has been deployed on H&E tissue collections. And, you know, there's several companies now whose goal is really to bring these tools and, you know, to research and then ultimately to, to the clinical arenas. They are mostly focused on better interpretation of the H&E Slide. Of course, this is the, you know, we have a 150 year legacy in the discipline of, of knowledge, you know, accumulated through, through H&E. And this is, of course, how pathologists learn uh, pathology. So almost in parallel, and I, you know, I saw this in, you know, when I started in industry several years ago, you know, computer vision and image analysis techniques came up and it was, it was fairly straightforward to take these programs Example, VisioPharm among them, more recently, you know, Indica Halo is a big player. We use both of these platforms in our in our company. But you know, it's very straightforward to take, um, for example, a hematoxylin stain slide, and then you know, it has a light blue stain, and then you know, quantify the brown pixels because that you know there are some spectral overlap, but it's pretty easy to see dark brown, even a computer, pretty easy to see dark brown on a, a light blue background. So you can get pixel. You can get positive pixels over a region of interest. You can count cells. You can, you know, you can mimic and count individual cells. You can you basically you can write algorithms based on purely anal, you know, computational features, nothing to do with machine learning. And you can get you know numbers that are pretty good. And this people, you know, it's been done in industry for quite a while, right? So AI comes along, and it's now being it's actually is used by the image analysis companies to help you know to learn to segment areas based on learning from a specific sample. But I would say that technology is being applied to its traditional use you know, in a very different way in which you know, several companies have taken large collections of H&E slides and used deep learning to learn new things. So now we have these almost, I would say, two completely sort of parallel lines of investigation going on, you know, image analysis and computational pathology without AI or with AI used for an image analysis purpose, and then you have deep learning looking at H&E collections. So then we bring a technology that allows you to deeply phenotype each individual cell. And then the question becomes like, what do you do with it? I mean, yes, it's cool, but how is it going to be useful? And I, I wish I knew more about this, but I have to say, based on what I've learned and read and the people I talk to is that the field doesn't know. We don't know yet how the best use of this multiplexing is, right? On a very simple level, for a pathologist to be able to access the data, all they need to be able to do is see it, right? They just need to be able to see the, the sort of the triple positive T cells in the tumor, maybe get the quantification. This doesn't require deep learning, right? It requires formatting data and making it pretty on the screen. So then if you think about what HME is being used for, you know, with deep learning, what deep learning has the capability of doing, in essence, is potentially seeing things that pathologists can't see or is not trained to see. 
or should be looking for. I mean, I don't know about you, but like when I look at a, a sea of lymphocytes that are pretty monomorphic, you know, which most non-activated lymphocytes are, either as a lymphoid aggregate or maybe, um, you know, tills in, in a tumor, they all look alike to me. So I don't know. I have no idea how AI might be able to tell that one of those is an exhausted T cell and the other one, you know, is a memory B cell. I don't see it happening, but that's the beautiful thing about science is, it, is that I love to be proven wrong. So I believe that this deep phenotyping is going to be incredibly useful for something, certainly to identify the phenotypes of specific cells and infiltrates to characterize, you know, better characterize hot tumors, you know, to understand checkpoints that are active, maybe identify other types of cells that are preventing your immune response. I know it's going to be useful to identify those cells, but I don't know today how we can use AI to enhance the diagnostic process, right? One possibility is that you merge the H&E, I think, with the MIF, in essence, generate this novel data set that no human has really ever seen, right? It's, you know, there's H&E on top of the self-phenotype characterization, you know, which could be 8, 12, or 16 colors, depending on the combinations you're looking at. Like, no human can see that. They can't process it. So, you, you feed that multidimensional data set into, you know, a neural network, and you don't know what's going to come out. It could be incredibly enlightening, or it could be confused. I, I really have no idea. On the other hand, like, you know, another sort of, I guess I think of this as a simpler way to use it. You know, how do we use MGS right now? The pathologist just picks a good section. Right? They send it to the molecular lab, they do all the sequencing, there's no tissue context, but then you have maybe a panel of IHCs where there's tissue context, but you know, no sequencing. It's the pathologist's job to kind of cobble it together in the form of a report and interpret it. Right? So you could use MIF data in the same way. You could just say, well, it's more information around staining, and then we'll just let the pathologist integrate it with this other you know, mutation information, and then that's how you figure it out. So I guess what, what I'm saying is that I don't think the field knows how to best use this, deploy this technology with any multiplex phenotyping technology, spatial transcriptomics, whatever it is, but we need to do experiments to figure it out. Yeah. You know, I think we kind of picture or it's intuitive. We're going to have some kind of future where digital pathology is the platform. And then we incorporate multiplexing based on molecular data or DNA hybridization and so forth, and then incorporate that with H&E features, and then also incorporate that with counting of lymphocytes and yes. classifying the various populations. And somehow, yes. we're going to come up with some kind of integrated diagnostic. You know How realistic that is, when it's going to happen, what it's going to look like. You know, I think there's a lot of unanswered questions. There may be options, right? Look at, um, you know, look at Lynch syndrome testing, right? For microsatellite instability, right? There are molecular assays and there are IHC assays. Pathologists like to see things. So if they are asked to establish a condition or a diagnosis, I think they would rather have something they can see than something they can't. In part, I think was the motivation you know, over 15 years ago, right, for creation of the, you know, the Lynch markers and looking, you know, at those markers in tissue to make a declaration. Now, now again, that doesn't give you molecular information, but on the other hand, you know, the MSI PCR tests don't talk to you about heterogeneity per se, right? You can only see that when you do the stain in a tissue. 
and I think if you look at you know testing for NTRAC, right? There's three you know TRAC receptors from ABC that can be fused with other partners in a variety of tumors. Overall, quite rare, but I don't think there really is a consensus on how you best test for these. You know, you can in some contexts IHC works fine. In some contexts it's confusing. You know, you can do fish, but then of course you know fish. You're betting on the translocation, and if it's not the right partner, you won't see it, so it looks normal. You know, maybe people thinking RNA-seq is the best way to do that, but not everybody has access to RNA-seq. So I think you have to really understand what the lesion is that you're looking for, and then understand really the best way for the patient in light of what you can do to test for it. So, And as you know, with some lesions, there are options. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. I think we need to you know, marry what's practical versus, you know, what's out there and come up with solutions that will ultimately benefit patients. So Keith Wharton, uh, thank you so much for being with us. Before we wrap up, let's learn a little bit about you. Tell us about your early experiences and how you came to be interested in digital pathology. Oh, wow. Thanks for that question. So in med school, I, I became really fascinated with molecular biology, how genes work in organisms. And of course, this was in the 80s. Best way to do that then was to look at mutant animals. And so I worked on Drosophila. And so doing that, I did a lot of bright field uh, IHC or immunocytic chemistry staining, we call it, a lot of microscopy in whole fly embryos. And so when I picked a medical specialty, I, you know, pathology was a pretty easy choice because you get to spend so much time on the microscope, right? And I'm sure you perhaps made the choice for the same reason. <laughs> But I trained in the 90s when there really wasn't any, there wasn't really much of a, such of a thing of digital pathology. I had heard from Ron Weinstein his efforts around telepathology, but, you know, this was a, you know, these cathode ray tubes and things. And so this was early days. But, you know, I did take a lot of pictures, both for conferences and as part of my PhD. So I, I love, you know, picture images. I uh, continued in science working in Drosophila and as a faculty and managed a research microscopy facility. I did a lot of pathology teaching. So I, I felt like there was uh, pathology was really sort of focused on its, you know, H&E and IHC panel. But then I also got to do this, you know, cool confocal microscopy and, you know, multiplex labeling. So I was always thinking of ways to kind of marry the two. After running a lab for a bit, so mid-career, I entered industry and I got a job working in a translational pathology lab department, sort of a mid-sized biotech biogen at the time. And there, and in a subsequent position at Novartis, I was able to use a lot of image analysis, do a lot of digital pathology, and see how pathology could be applied uh, across the drug development spectrum from early research through safety assessment and early and late stage clinical trials. And so actually with the founder of Flagship Labs in Colorado, we wrote a book and he helped write and co-edit it around molecular histopathology and tissue biomarkers with a lot of emphasis on image analysis and digital pathology. And it was published now about six years ago. So it was a great experience, you know, working with the experts in the field at that time. So, so anyways, I will finish the story. So after eight years in pharma, I was really became more interested in diagnostics as a field. And so I most recently served as a senior medical director at Leica Biosystems. You know, Leica, one of the major scanner manufacturers as, all, as, as well as, uh, you know, reagent and staining and really the whole histopathology workflow. So I supported the whole business, which was really exciting. And I was fortunate to be a part of the Aperio team that was able to obtain the second FDA clearance for pulse light imaging system. This was the AT2DX in digital pathology in 2019. It was really kind of a, you know, a landmark for the field after the Philips telesite approval a couple of years earlier. And I also worked closely with the DPA, Digital Pathology Association, during that time. So 
incredible privilege because, of course, you meet a lot of different stakeholders in the digital pathology world. So I've been at both of you for the last six months as a medical director. And so, as, you know, as I mentioned, we, we're totally dependent on digital pathology you know, in, our, in our shop. We work with a lot of pharma clients, as I mentioned, on really cool, and we think important multiplex projects, and also with a variety of stakeholders to understand how these technologies might be used eventually in a diagnostic context. And I'm, I'm really you know, keen to understand what that road is going to be like, because I think it will be, I guess, you know, the way I think of it is that the pathologists already do some multiplexing, right? There's PIN4, there's a few other panels they use for very specific diagnostic decisions. I think what multiplex does allow is the, I mean, it allows you conceptually to do something you just can't do with single IHCs. You just can't do it. So to identify, for example, marker triple positive or quadruple positive cells and, you know, to be able to precisely quantify them in the gene. So yeah, that's where I am now. It's an incredible journey. I think we're just this exciting stage where, where there's a lot of technologies out there, there's a lot of information coming from the single cell phenotyping studies that are going to be informing new panels and helping us identify these novel cell types that indeed. Yeah, this is a very exciting road to be on indeed. So just before we wrap up, what excites you? Where do you see things going in the next 10 years or so? Yeah, so in the next 10 years, I think about you know many of the topics we touched upon, but a bit of a convergence so that these modalities are all brought to bear in the environment of a pathologist. So I think about, and I remember seeing Dirk Sunskin, the uh, original founder of Aperio, talk about this, introduced this concept at you know, meetings 15 years ago or so, you know, the concept of the pathologist cockpit, right? So bringing everything together on the screens in front of a pathologist to let them navigate between, you know, the data and the diagnosis. So so having that cockpit come together, having that be an intelligent cockpit, having them having it be one that's visually striking that they can trust, having it be one that's ergonomically friendly in a way that, for example, electronic medical records are typically not friendly and you know have been attributed to contributing to you know burnout of physicians because of all the time they spend filling out the EMR, the so-called death by a thousand clicks. We don't want the experience of the pathologist to be like that. We want it to be something that enhances their experience as a pathologist and makes them more effective. It's really a convergence, I think, of all of these things coming together and just, you know, it being better for everybody. Yeah, that's great. The great convergence and making us more effective and better for everybody. Well, our guest has been Dr. Keith Wharton from Ultaview. We'll see you next time on Digital Pathology Today. Thank you. Thank you. This has been Digital Pathology Today. Please be sure to subscribe. Thanks for listening.